0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Glenn Gare. He's Professor of Psychology and Founding Director of Evolutionary Studies at the State University of New York and an author. Ancestral lifestyles are a big trend at the moment, taking influence from our Paleolithic past to inform how we eat, train, and move in the modern world. But taking an ancestral approach to our psychological well-being is much rarer, and this is Glenn's work. What can insights about our past teach us about how to enjoy the present. Expect to learn why depression and anxiety might actually be useful, why understanding the reason for emotions reduces their power over you, why it's miraculous that the education system has worked at all, why men are twice as likely to die in early adulthood than women, the danger of technology through an evolutionary lens, and much more. It's my final few days in New York City, and then I am back to Austin this weekend. And the programming over the next couple of weeks is insane. So some huge guests, some really exciting episodes I'm looking forward to having. Uh, And also looking forward to not living out of a suitcase anymore, which has been the last fortnight of my life. So yes, enjoyed the trip, but looking forward to settling down into a somewhat normal routine for at least the next month. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, They will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter c, letter d, wisdom, and MW15 at checkout. All right, quick maths the less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. This episode is brought to you by Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. And now, please welcome Glenn Gare. Glenn Gare, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me, Chris.
0: Something that I think is really interesting is that there's been a paleo movement around food and training, but there hasn't really seemed to be an equivalent around psychology. There's no sort of paleo psychologists, or at least people that have taken that and tried to apply it to their own lives. I haven't seen many people walking around doing paleo psychology yet. Hmm.
1: Paleo psychology, that's a great phrase. I wish I would have come up with that myself. Um, it's, it's a really good question. So... When we talk about the paleo lifestyle or the paleo movement, um, most people are familiar with the, the dietary component of it. And honestly, as someone who teaches about evolution and the human experience, that is the most vivid and easiest example to get across to people. Um, it makes sense. It matches data. People can sort of see their own behavior and, and think about it. And just the idea of eating too much processed food leading to health problems is, you know, kind of something that we all know. And then this really puts sort of a, a scientific framework around it. So the, the, paleo, um, the paleo diet and the paleo solution related to exercise and nutrition, tons of sense. And, and it's definitely a, a reasonably well-established movement at this point. Um, But as as you're talking about um, this broader concept of paleo psychology, which really is, I think, an interesting way of framing what I'm calling positive evolutionary psychology, um, using evolutionary psychology to help us lead better lives, to understand ourselves better, to lead better lives. Community lives and to help advance the goals of our communities and so forth in positive kinds of ways. It turns out that the same reasoning that you can apply to the paleo diet movement really can be applied to many issues regarding our emotional social functioning as well. And I think that um, that's really very much untapped at this point. And I'm I'm hoping to be part of, you know, maybe even just a small part, but part of the solution to sort of get Get people in a broader sense to think about um, how broadly applicable this evolutionary perspective is with all aspects of our lives.
0: Is there something that's missing from positive psychology which evolutionary psychology adds in? I know that for a long time psychology was focused on all of the malignant parts and biases and how we mess up, Mm -hmm. and then positive psychology came along and said, "Well, we should probably try and actually improve people's lives as well. That would be a useful thing." But -hmm. then. I'm trying to work out what it is that's missing from positive psych that is added into by evolutionary psychology.
1: Sure, it's a really good question. Um, And if you go back to the history of the two fields, evolutionary psychology and positive positive psychology, it's super interesting that they have, um, there's a lot of parallels. So they're both considered relatively new fields within psychology. They both... Started arguably in the nineties um, in a lot of ways. Um, positive psychology emerged when Martin Seligman became president of the American Psychological Association and really made a, a big call to behavioral scientists and practitioners saying, you know, exactly what you're talking about. What why can't, you know, why can't we study the positive features of the human experience scientifically so that we can amplify. The good and the positive which i think is you know i'm totally on board with that message and with a lot of the work that's been done evolutionary psychology really started i mean it started and stopped over the years ever since darwin in a lot of ways but the current movement started very much in the 90s with people like david buss stephen pinker um Lita Cosminis, and john Tooby, and um really said you know we need to think about everything when it comes to human behavior relative to our evolutionary history. So um, I think that field has been very powerful and successful at helping shed light on things like human emotions, human relationships, um, human sexuality, human aggression, social interactions, like tons and tons of fields. And when uh, my co-author Nicole Wedberg and I were thinking about this idea of positive evolutionary psychology the the big insight that we had was you know positive psychology is great but if you look at the literature in the journals the academic journals of positive psychology such as the journal of happiness studies and so forth and the main textbooks in the field it's it's very devoid of evolutionary thinking Um, and it doesn't seem intentionally so you know i think generally speaking behavioral and social scientists have not been trained in evolutionary thinking across the years. I, you know, that's a whole separate um, thread that I could go down. But you know, positive psychologists don't have that training, and so when you read their their articles, their scientific work, the general theme tends to be how can we make people happier. And Chris, I'm not going to say that's a bad goal at all. I'm not going to argue against that as a goal. Um, but when you start thinking about things from an evolutionary perspective, that starts to look like a very limited um, very limited approach to sort of what we should be doing in terms of trying to advance humans, advance our society, advance our scholarly work. So the idea that we came up with, well, why don't we do what we can to evolutionize positive psychology, see if we can integrate um, these two, these two fields. And I will tell you um, quickly that my my co-author, Nicole, and I went to a symposium one time. It was all positive psychology research presentations. It was held on our campus. It was really, as you can imagine, it was a positive experience, uh, mostly given by students. They had really great projects. Um, they had done some great reading, pr- proposed and implemented a bunch of great research. And the insight that Nicole and I had after talking to every presenter and looking at every Um, presentation was that not a single one of them mentioned or even came close to thinking about things from an evolutionary perspective and I'm gonna say that without exception make what can we do to make people happier seemed to be the singular goal of each and every project and that's when we were like you know what we gotta we gotta do our part to shed some light on on this situation Which is, um, you know, how can we look at the goals of positive psychology but within an evolutionary framework? And maybe that'll be a more powerful way to actually try to implement some of these values and ideas.
0: Well, we derive satisfaction from life on a lot of other pathways than simply happiness, right? There's a lot of other things that contribute to living a good life than being happy all of the time. And I suppose thinking at it from the reverse, thinking about what the potential holes in evolutionary psychology that are filled by positive psychology are – a lot of EVE psych consists of harsh truths and uncomfortable realities about our genuine, uh, less than admirable motivations for the things that we do.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, (laughs) Evolutionary psychology is pretty famous for studying the dark side of the human experience. Um, And, you know, there's a general negativity bias that people have. So, you know, even if even if a good percentage of evolutionary psychological research has not been on the dark side, you know, negative dark things tend to stand out in our minds. Just as a, an example, um, we had a great speaker on campus the other day, virtually um, presenting, and it was Todd Shackelford, who's a um, really renowned uh, alum of David Buss, and now he oversees the psychology department at Oakland University. In Michigan, and he's published a ton, largely on facets of sperm competition and how that relates to behavior and infidelity. No way! Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, great, great research. And he gave a talk. That's the specific concept. Then he had multiple studies on this. Was the phrase he used was forced in pair copulation, um, which is essentially. Um, I almost feel like after like trigger warning with something like this is essentially like rape within a within a pairing within a monogamous pairing. Mm-hmm. And he presented data. This is not an altogether uncommon experience. Um, you know, and he gave f- fantastic and well thought out evolution based reasoning for the conditions under which this happens and how it connects with. Um, infidelity and how it connects with paternal uncertainty and a lot of these things that you know are, are bread and butter in evolutionary psychology mm-hmm. and, and I'll tell you I thought it was it, I thought it was terrific Um, there were a few students who who heard it that I think were were kind of upset about the nature of the content and you know I got thinking this it was such such a great presentation but it, it's almost and this is Without any offense at all to Todd or people who are doing similar kind of research, I think it's important research, I think, that we need to em- embrace and be open-minded about studying any and all topics within the academy. But you can see the PR issue, you know? When you, <laughs> <laughs> right?
0: Like, yeah, you can man. see, like... Well, there's a PR issue in everything to do with evolutionary yeah. psychology, as far yes. as I can see. Like, yeah. look at David Buss's most recent one, Men, men Behaving Badly, or mm-hmm. Bad Men, I think it was, in America. Or Mm -hmm. in the UK.
1: In the UK, right.
0: Dude, that was... It's an entire book telling you that all of the things that you think that you value in your partner are adaptations to try and get around your own sexual defenses. That you're basically in a predator-prey. It's analogous to predators and prey that we have one party that gets a new type of trick and then the other one has to learn about how the trick works to then dampen that down. Yeah, Dude, our, our motivations for most of the things that we do—they're not. It's not that they're not virtuous, but they're not as pure mm-hmm. as we think that they are. They often come from a place which is significantly more zero sum. It's significantly more competitive. It's significantly mm-hmm. less altruistic.
1: Sure, a- absolutely, absolutely. Um, and it's funny because I know David reasonably well, and I, I think the world of him and his research. Um, I but I do think that he's almost been too successful. And what I mean by that is his research on sex differences and human mating and our evolved psychology surrounding mating has been so um, so prolific. And that's one of the things, and there's like you're saying, there's multiple things in evolutionary psych, but that's one of the things in evolutionary psych that makes a lot of people in the modern landscape feel uncomfortable about
0: you know yeah, this idea of... yeah I, 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 that makes a lot of sense it would be nice if if david bus is is looking at some of the darker aspects of human nature through an evolutionary lens it would be nice to have somebody who is equally well known uh, but looking at some of the lighter sides but i suppose yeah. you're you're right it's just less it's less attention grabbing yeah who wants to know yeah. that you're nicer than you actually thought you were <laughs> right, you know it's right. ju- it's just not going to grab headlines so do you right. think is that one of the big hurdles because i i'm Fascinated by evolutionary psychology and constantly surprised I'm also fascinated by the fact that it hasn't been integrated into modern society tremendously well
1: right right yeah it's I think that's it's it's quite fascinating that way um, I think that you know someone like like David has been you know he's been so prolific um, there have been if you step back there have been efforts and attempts to to study the bright side of our experience from an evolutionary perspective. A good example is David Sloan Wilson um, of Binghamton who studies and has studied altruism very extensively. And he studies religion, but from like a very evolution-based scientific perspective. And and he's for, you know, for a secular scientist, David I think is very, um, very, kind to to religious ideology kind of talking about how it's steeped in our evolutionary history and what are the benefits and what are the communal benefits and you know why did why was this such a successful approach to to organizing human social interactions so um so i think that there actually is quite a bit of stuff on on all sorts of things about human behavior and and community and interactions but You know, I will tell you when you ask people what do you think about evolutionary psych, a very high proportion of people say, oh, that's the stuff that says that men and women are different and that, you know, it justifies males bad behavior and this kind of thing. And it's like you hear this from person after person. I'm like, no, that's you know, this is like it's like there's a pie and this is like maybe a small slice of it that's kind of related to what people are talking about. But man, they hear that and they latch onto it. So
0: That's something quite interesting because a lot of the time when you bring up the fact that people who are perhaps on the left might have uh, an issue with some of the conclusions that are drawn from evolutionary psychology um, and most of the responses to that are these people on the left are idiots, they're denying the way that we work, blah, blah, blah. But another interesting way to look at this is you, could, you also are not only getting a perhaps overzealous response from the people, but you're also not showing everything from the subject area as well. There's another big bit of this which is being missed off. That's a, an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. yeah. Some of the stats that you mentioned, you have it in the introduction. You have a couple, of, a couple of interesting insights here. Men are more than twice as likely to experience early mortality death during young adulthood compared with women. Is sure. that
1: risk-taking? It's related to risk-taking, yeah. This is the work of um, Dan Kruger and Randy Nessie. Um, really super interesting. And I, I like to pre- present this um, to give people a sense of how relevant and important evolutionary psychology is. Because some sometimes people say, well, that stuff doesn't really matter. It doesn't pertain to the modern world. It's not. It doesn't address important social issues. And uh, the stuff on male-to-female mortality ratio is is huge. It's a very reliable set of findings. Um, so Dan Kruger, who's an evolutionary psychologist who works in a school of public health at University of Michigan, he has access to all kinds of health-related data and started with his then mentor, Randy Nessie, um, who, you know, coined the term Darwinian medicine, huge, huge scholar in the field. He said, well, mortality is a pretty big health, health-related issue. And I have a whole bunch of evolution-based predictions surrounding mortality. And so, so Dan was essentially empowered to start looking at this. and what he found was, you know it's, it's been known for quite a while that males, in terms of, in terms of simply survival and, and mortality, don't do as well as, as women. Men live shorter lives, they're more likely to die at different life stages than our are, are women for various kinds of reasons. And that had been known, but what Dan added to it in his research was he said, based on evolutionary reasoning, since mating is so intensive and competitive, and mating, um, mate selection in particular, sort of starts in the late teens and, and you know peaks and maybe the early to mid-20s, we would expect that to be a, a part of life where men are particularly more likely to out-die women mm, so mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. i can't really that's the best i can in terms of how i can word it and and what he found was exactly that 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 men always males always um are more likely to die than women at every population that's been studied at every age but when you get to the teenage about 15 to 25 you see a big peak um a huge like was a huge spike in the data and then it kind of smooths smooths out a little bit and i'm like that's relevant, you know, if you think that's not, if you think that's irrelevant to, to societal functioning, you know, I got news for you, if, 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 it under, if it helps us understand life and death for, you know, you know millions of, of people at any given time, I'd say that's highly relevant and something that we would do better just understanding. So, But
0: well, that's when men are getting into gangs. That's when men are doing antisocial behavior. It's when their yeah. testosterone levels are highest, and yeah. then it starts to taper off toward the end of their twenties. It's when they're getting into prison. It's when they're causing the most violent crimes. It's when they're most likely—I'm going right. to guess—probably to be killed or to kill someone. Both, both,
1: and phys- physical causes. Um, so so Dan divided things into what he calls internal versus external causes of death and these effects were were big for both kind but they were particularly exacerbated for what he called external causes so that is um, fights and and murder and homicide um, and and things that he calls like like um, risky kinds of things Car
0: crashes driving fast
1: yeah exactly the reason that that men are paying higher you know young men are paying higher insurance rates than than young women is boy races. yeah, it's all tied into the same exact thing. There's a, a phrase um, to capture this, put forward by uh, Daly and Wilson, other um, some other folks who sort of uh, carved out the field. And the phrase is "young male syndrome," um, and the idea is that you know young men who engage in risky behavior to the point that it can be dangerous and lead to all kinds of ad- adverse outcomes, including premature death. Um, that's, that's a natural feature of the male experience. Um, you know, in other words, when we see this kind of stuff, it's not like, Oh, that guy's an idiot. You know, it's, it's what it is, is that that's part of the male developmental experience. And it's so common. Um, those kinds of things are so common. And, And then if you think about like shows, like I remember, I used to watch the show Jackass, which I don't know if you remember, like that's, it's just guys, you know, it's guys being stupid. It's young men being stupid. Um, and, and risky and, it and all those young different.
0: men being stupid but yeah. johnny knoxville's in his late 40s or 50s now and they've come back and done jackass three and steve-o's back in it and everyone else is back oh really in it, and that's just come out so uh, <laughs> I, th- I think <laughs> oh, they might be outliers that just haven't learned their lesson but i you, you're totally sure. correct what what's adaptive about that risk-taking behavior for you or what would have been adaptive about that super high risk-taking yeah. behavior for young men
1: sure well You know, as is true in in most sexually reproducing species, um, not everyone gets to reproduce, you know. And from an evolutionary perspective, reproduction is what I like to call Darwin's bottom line. Um, And being shut out of reproduction from an evolutionary perspective is something that you would totally expect any and all kinds of adaptations to emerge to prevent being shut out of reproduction because any of our ancestors that didn't reproduce didn't become ancestors. So the ones who did reproduce had whatever behavioral and physical um, adaptations that ultimately cultivated reproduction. Um, so I think you know. Then you step back and be like, well, why are men like young men like this? And and mathematically, the answer essentially is that it's a risky strategy under some conditions, it's going to lead to early death or adverse outcomes, but it's also likely that the benefits, the reproductive benefits on average over large periods of time likely outweighed the survival-related costs. You know, the same same reason that the peacock's tail emerged. You know, a lot of peacocks died at the at the teeth of tigers, you know, but the ones who reproduced on average, you know. They had, had, the, had...
0: They had the house edge equivalent. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. dude, it's so, I mean, that's a really good way to look at it. And I suppose this sort of summarizes one of the key issues that you find with the modern era, which is this mismatch, right? Which yeah. is that we are designed for one particular type of environment and now we're living in another and this mismatch causes us unhappiness or trauma or just a, a suboptimal um, approach to the way that we live.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like the the idea of mismatch is so powerful, and it's it is something that we've only scratched the surface. I feel like it is so relevant. It's so powerful. Um, and what I like about it from a from a PR perspective is it's very different. Like. Once, when you start talking to to students or other academics about a lot of the stuff, um, like the male-female differences, and that kind of stuff, people start getting, they politicize it and start going down all kinds of rabbit holes. But when you start talking to people about, you know, generally speaking, if you look at the human mind and our experience and the conditions under which our ancestors evolved, it's night and day. There are so many obvious and important mismatches between the modern world and the world that we evolve to live in, and, and I feel like people people across you know all kinds of ideologies and backgrounds can really connect with this particular message. Um, I like to to think about it as a very simple way to think about it is the fish of a, a fish that gets out of the fishbowl. Um, I was teaching for a few years; it was great experience. I was teaching evolution based classes in China, and they were all second English as a second language learners. And I remember I gave a whole, what I thought was a really great lecture on mismatch. And a very bright student came up to me, um, her name was Vicky, and she said, Professor, we don't understand what you just said. (laughs) And I was like, after an hour and a half of lecturing, I was like, oh, man. So I went back to my hotel room, I thought about it, I came back the next day, and I'm like, raise your hand if you ever had a pet fish. You know, half the kids raise their hand. I'm like, you ever see the fish, you ever have that experience where you go in your room and it's on the carpet dead? And I'm like, students made a face, like a a bunch of them, you know, going to raise their hand at that. I'm like, well, that's because the ancestors of the fish were completely aquatic and all the adaptations of the fish are are completely designed for a fully aquatic experience kind of thing. And, you know, so I use that as an example of now think about, um, then I think I I talk about the, the monkey in the, the cage and, and, um, all the work by Henry, Harry Harlow. What's the story there? Well, so he, you know, he's he's famous for showing how um, infant monkeys. He's kind of famous for traumatizing young monkeys. So he did research in, in labs at, at I think it was one of the UC schools years ago. And if you take a monkey away, a little baby monkey away from its mom, these were rhesus monkeys and macaques. He was using, um, and. You give it a choice of a mother, a fake mother that's either like a stuffed animal, kind of like a fluffy monkey-like um, stuffed animal, versus a, a fake mother that's wire, like made out of metal, and but has milk on it. Um, like the, the the monkeys are torn because they they feel the comfort of the one, but they need the milk from the other. But a secondary you know so that's a lesson on like on on natural impulses regarding need for for maternal care kind of thing but a secondary thing is all the monkeys that were in his research um who were taken away from their mothers for experimental purposes when they were released with the rest of the colony that he had they were messed up and they weren't able to um engage in regular appropriate mating behavior or friendship behavior or coalitional behavior they really showed just a deep set of problems. And you can think about it as well, their experiences were completely mismatched under ancestral conditions. Little baby monkeys weren't taken out of their natural environment for several years. And then, sorry, my light goes off automatically. (laughs) Modern technology, right? Um, You know, and so, and this is the reason uh, um, in New York, the uh, the Bronx Zoo, when I was a kid, I would go to the Bronx Zoo all the time, and they had this great place called the Monkey House, and the Monkey House was just like this big old building and had maybe 50 um, cages, and the cages just had random monkeys. Sometimes they were with the same species, sometimes not. Sometimes there was like a log in there kind of thing to try to make it seem a little bit natural-ish. And in 2012, the Bronx Zoo closed the Monkey House, and worse, they turned it into administrative offices um, but, you know, from a mismatch perspective, you can totally see it, you know, at some point, zoologists figured out, wait a minute, this is we're we're torturing these animals. They're we're putting them in mismatched conditions. They're showing stress responses. They're showing anxiety responses and so forth. And it, it only makes sense when once you start to think about things from the evolutionary perspective and from the mismatch perspective in particular. So the next step is, well, let's take a look at at the modern human experience and look at us, you know, engaging in like a Skype conversation. Um, look at us, you know, sitting in our, our chairs, you know, artificial
0: can, light on a Yeah,
1: sure. Uh, um, and, and engaging in interactions a lot of times with strangers. So you were just saying before you were in New York City, I mean, the number of strangers that you see, if you walk down a block in New York City on a busy day, hundreds or even thousands. And you don't think anything of it, but under ancestral conditions, we didn't experience strangers regularly. And when we did, it usually meant that there was some danger or some kind of problem. So, you know, modern evolutionary psychologists have really started thinking about how many, in how many ways are our modern conditions mismatch from the environments that we evolved to be in. And maybe we're kind of like like the fish in the fishbowl. Maybe it's like we're so surrounded by these conditions and have been our whole lives that it's hard to question it, you know? So I feel like the evolutionary perspective gives us like the tools, the infrastructure to actually question some of these things. And I think that's that's really very, very powerful and can lead to a lot of positive changes.
0: But the question here is which of the new adaptations, which of the mismatches are actually beneficial? The fact that I don't need to go and go to a stream to get mm-hmm. water, I've just sure. had it in a bottle here, or the fact that I can be cooler when it's warm or warmer when it's cool. You know, those, those are good things. What are the things that we have as a part of society and specifically for you that are making us psychologically unhealthy? So what would be some of the big the big problems that you've got or what would be the main, the main uh, enemies in terms of mismatch.
1: That's such a great question. Um, And as you know, I've thought about this quite, quite a bit Um, over the past several years. A lot of the research in my lab has been on this question. We've demonstrated that modern public education is mismatched in a whole bunch of ways that can have adverse effects. Modern politics, um, is mismatched, we've done research showing that humans are not really good at processing large scale politics, you know? So if you see like, why is the political world such a mess these days? Um, you know, part of the reason is because our minds evolve for small scale politics and not large scale politics. And, and the one that I've focused on quite a bit of late that I'm really interested in is um, I guess what we'd have to call like social media or like modern communication systems. Under ancestral conditions, if you were going to communicate with someone, it was going to be face to face, and that was it. You know that was the only choice for lion's share of human evolutionary history. And if you're face to face with with someone that you know, your interactions are going to be very different than if you're anonymous and you're dealing with a stranger. And if you're anonymous and dealing with a stranger and you're communicating through a screen, you know, suddenly like the number of mismatches that creep into it are enormous. So when I t- teach about this, I'll ask my students, i will say, what percentage of your, just write down what percentage of your communications with other people in the last week has been of the non-face-to-face variety. And on average, we usually see about set, they'll say 70, 80% you know and i i've, I've got to tell you you know that's it's for for my generation that's that's starting to to be true as well you know we used to sort of laugh at the young kids and their cell phones and now everyone you know grandma's grandpa's everyone's addicted to their cell phones and and it's such a problem because you know like you're saying chris there, the number of benefits that come for this are obvious you know uh, the way the simple way to think about it is you know with this with this simple thing right here i can Ask and answer any question in the entire history of the world within one second, you know, you know like every at, at any moment at any time. It's it's crazy. Um, the the power that that has, I can communicate with people immediately. If, uh, if I have a family member that uh, that is in, in trouble, I can immediately provide kind of financial or some other kind of help. So the benefits are all, I think, very obvious. And we think quite a bit about those benefits. What we don't see because again because we're the fish in the fishbowl what we don't see is the problems associated with it and when you start thinking about it from a mismatch perspective man there are problems so i'll give one example anonymous communication um under ancestral conditions there wasn't anonymous communication and in fact we kind of evolved to be a little a little skittish about anonymous communication so you know, when you go to the grocery store, someone has their their name badge on. When a student comes into my class, I say, hi, I'm Glenn, you know, what's your name? Your your name's on the roster. Um, doctors introduce themselves by name. If you think about the professions where anonymity um, is part of what they're doing, it's really rare. Um, I like to give the example of clowns. You know, I wrote a whole piece about why, why clown phobia is pretty common. I'm like, well, clowns are like, that's like the only job where you're you're hiding your identity. You know, they have a made up name. They got this. They're they're in a mask. They're in a costume. They don't break character. Like that's creepy. You know, but it's partly creepy because under ancestral conditions, we were only dealing with people in a face to face variety. On top of that, when you look at research on antisocial behavior, the best way to get people to do bad things is hide their identity. Um, so oh, you did a
0: Halloween, there was a Halloween experiment about this.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. What exactly. was that? So, this is a study done by Diener in the 1970s where they brought kids, um, kids were trick-or-treating, and so the, the kids were going to this one particular house where they were videotaping the kids, and they measured whether the kids were wearing um, a, a mask or not, you know, some, some, Halloween uh, costumes have masks and some don't, of course. And they looked at whether kids were in a group or not because when you're in a group, your own identity kind of gets diffused. And then they did the classic where they put out the bucket on the front porch and that bucket almost without fail will have the phrase you know, on a yellow post-it saying, take one, like you know, everyone knows the rule. And so of course kids are kids and they're not gonna always take one. And what they found was that both of those variables, if they were in a group, kids, each individual kid was more likely to take a whole handful. And if their identity was hidden, if, if, they're, if they were wearing a mask, people couldn't tell who they were, if they were Darth Vader or this kind of thing, under that condition, they were also more likely to engage in antisocial behavior and just like snag, snag a whole bunch.
0: What do you think the effect on the group says? Is that just diffusion of responsibility?
1: Yeah, yeah. So diffusion of responsibility is a phrase that a lot of behavioral scientists will will use for that where, um, you know, it's it's an ironic finding. And the finding essentially is that when there's more people and there's a bigger group of people, um, each individual has less feels and experiences less responsibility for whatever's going on. So people are more likely to do the wrong thing, especially if other people are doing it. They're less likely to help someone in need and this kind of thing. One ironic thing on that is that if you need help, you want fewer people around rather than
0: more people around. (laughs) There's those stories about um, blocks of flats and somebody being attacked downstairs and nobody calling the police because everybody presumes that somebody else is going to call the police. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. What do you think is happening ancestrally with that effect there? Is it the fact that reciprocal altruism and sympathy and empathy and kindness and giving and stuff like that are less necessary if you're in a group because you already have support of other people? Therefore, giving away something when you already have that support uh, to an extra person doesn't make as much sense.
1: That's that's super interesting. I had never thought about it quite that way, but I think that certainly might contribute partly to this. Um, so this idea of reciprocal altruism um, came from Trivers, who's a huge, huge renowned uh, figure in the field and essentially said that we evolved a lot of adaptations around the fact that humans engage in reciprocal altruism and that's a very basic feature of of who we are and what we do. So I help you, you help me. And and our species fits a lot of the criteria of that, which is we generally live in stable groups. So we see the same individuals over and over. We have good memory for individual faces and voices and that kind of thing. Um, and we live relatively long lives. So there's like a long you know, arc of time to sort of pay people back. But But that gets screwed up when we're dealing with strangers, right? Because reciprocal altruism evolved under conditions where we were surrounded by members of our clan you know small clans where you knew every individual it's a
0: long-term and, game yeah
1: yeah exactly exactly so once we're once we're dealing with strangers everything gets a lot of our evolved psychology wasn't it wasn't designed for that so things like reciprocal altruism like if i'm in a group and we're all a part of a team and we know each other and we're going to see each other tomorrow and then there's someone who needs help who's outside the group i'm like well that's a stranger who's never going to help me and might even be dangerous for me. So, so many of these, these things that, that we might get like outraged about and I can't believe people did this or that or didn't help, a lot of it can really be understood by this idea that so many of the modern situations we might run into are outside the bounds of what our minds would have evolved to experience.
0: That's just in-group, out-group mentality, but I suppose if you're part of a group, it's easier to find an out group as opposed to if you were on your own, if there was just two of you, then you might behave in more of that sort of reciprocally altruistic way. What did you learn about education?
1: Yeah, so that, that was a really fascinating area to get into. Um, so, you know, we have public... Um, obligatory public education, and that's true in so much of the modern world these days. And I had a student named Katie Gruskin, who was, um, she was in my evolutionary studies seminar and became super interested in, she just started thinking about education. She was an ed major and she was thinking about education from an evolutionary perspective. So I pointed her toward the literature of Peter Gray, um, who's at Boston College, who's written extensively about education from an evolutionary perspective. The skinny of what he finds is that modern um, public school systems have very mismatched and unnatural ways of educating young kids. This idea of sitting, you know, having um, kids in the same age, so like age stratification is one problem. Everyone here is 10 and there's 30 of you and there's one 30 year old woman over there and you're gonna sit there for eight hours every single day and listen to what that person says. And the knowledge that you're gonna get is what we might call secondary instead of primary knowledge. So instead of like learning how to do something, which is under ancestral conditions, what education would have looked like, we're like writing about it. And instead of like, you know, throwing a ball and seeing what happens, we're like writing about the physics of it and arcs and the math of it. That stuff's, you know, it's important, but we have such a such a focus on that kind of secondary knowledge. Um, there's less time for play. There's there's less time for natural interactions. There's less time for mixed age kinds of groups, and you know one of the outcomes associated with that is you tend to see tons of kids, and it, it seems to increase every year, um, are diagnosed with attentional kinds of problems and are given prescriptions for for pharmaceuticals, and you know maybe the problem is not the kid. Maybe the problem is the situation. So my student Katie did a whole study that really took this approach of thinking of schools um as a as derivative of factory mindsets and so when you look at, at when public schools were started largely in the uk actually is, is um where her research took her um it was you know the bell rings at the factory and everyone's going to start working and the bell rings again and it's it's lunchtime and this kind of thing and I now the bell... that they
0: used the same bells in schools as they did in factories that's what Katie had said. Yeah,
1: yeah, The exactly. same
0: bells. I mean, if that's not showing right. the hand of the ruthless capitalists that are trying to compromise right. the proletariat's labor, I don't know what is.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, and you know, there's so so many mismatches. So that's like the entire idea. And now we don't even question it. You know, it's like I was saying. I think that whole thing about like we're s- so much of of what we have is just. You don't question it, you know. Most of us don't like public schools. Public school, you got to go to school, you got to do this, you got to learn that, because that's because that's what we do. But if you step back and be like, wait a minute, where did this come from? You, you know, why is it like this? And what Peter Gray did, and, and Katie leaned a lot on his research for her work. What he did was he looked extensively at what does learning and education look like. In uh, pre-Westernized societies or nomadic societies, of which there's, you know, lots of examples of nomadic societies in Africa, in, in the Pacific Islands, in South America, you know, lots of places. And the common theme he found was there's not a single thing that looks at all like public, um, like public education. Um, that kids that the word learning and playing and education none of those concepts are teased apart in in these uh, pre-Westernized groups. And regularly, kids are learning from other kids that the main teachers in pre-Westernized nomadic societies aren't adults, but they're kids that are usually slightly older. So an eight-year-old might learn from a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old might might be teaching something to a 15-year-old or a 14-year-old. and. They're, they're learning while they're playing and while they're just kind of out for the day and interacting. And wow, that is wildly different than sit down and take this standardized test and use number two pencil. And if you can't do it, take this pill, you know, and, and we're going to have to talk to your mom and dad because there's something the matter with you. And, you know, it's it. I feel like this mismatch perspective really forces us to step back and, and just look at the problems we have and just step back and think about them from this this deeper level and I feel like it's it's powerful um, and what Katie found the short version of her work and she published it in evolutionary behavioral science sciences um, was that she asked people she gave a whole list of things that that are typical of nomadic education nomadic learning context um, learning in groups learning in mixed age groups um, less more project-based kinds of kinds of experiences. And what she found was people who reported a higher proportion of those experiences in their own elementary school experiences liked school better later and did better at school at all levels later than that. So to the extent that we can like step back and and this kind of goes to your original question about like paleo psychology, like how can we use this perspective not just for what we eat and nutrition, and that kind of thing, but for sort of our broader
0: paleo social- education,
1: paleo education exactly, exactly. And there's you know there's something to it.
0: Going on to the emotions that you looked at, what did you learn about kindness? I find this quite an interesting, um, a- an interesting thing to think about evolutionarily because huh. kindness is one of those. It's quite bizarre why you would decide to give away some of your time or feel a compulsion to help another person. We're told you know survival of the fittest that evolution is this sort of ruthless tool Kindness appears to be a little bit of a, a an interesting dynamic in that
1: absolutely absolutely so I Kindness from an evolutionary perspective is is super interesting for all the reasons that you just pointed out and uh, you know one of the things about kindness is we like it in mates you know let me just kind of start there i'll sort of unpack things a bit more from there but when david buss you know probably the the best known figure in the field or certainly one of them and it's a great guy and a great researcher you know when he did his famous research in the late 80s early 90s about what do people want in mates what got famously amplified from that was how men and women want different things across lots of cultures and that's true but the the headline the um that really got sort of dismissed is that kindness and mutual love were for both men and women across pretty much all these cultures number one
0: that was ubiquitous yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah. exactly and and you know there's something very um it's not as sexy you know it's 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 you know, people are like, "Well, that's that's fine, but wow, men like this and women doing and women yeah, like it's this." it's much men easier do...
0: to say, "Oh, men are after youth and fertility, and women are after resources and status," than uh, ex- both yes. of them are after kindness. And I saw a recent study on this uh, that just came out uh, last month, and um, humor is up there for both, both for men both. and women, for, for, absolutely
1: yeah. for for lots, yeah, for lots of good reasons. So, you know, one of the reasons that kindness exists is. You know, it's, if it's effective in securing a mate, and if it's effective in maintaining an effective mateship, then it's gonna be selected. You know, that's kind of evolution 101 um, in, a re, in a sexually reproducing species. So even though that didn't get a lot of airtime with with the, the findings from what Boss and his colleagues found, you know, it's really, really critical, and, and it makes it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you have a kind mate, then that means that that's someone that you can trust your feelings with, you can be vulnerable with, you can expect that person to help you and to provide you benefits. And then it becomes a reciprocal altruism kind of thing where you know, you're know you providing benefits back and forth and that kind of thing. So uh, And again, kindness doesn't exist in every species, but we're a species where we evolve to be surrounded by the same individuals over long periods of time. And that s- social ecosystem has to be considered strongly when we think about our evolved psychology. So, under that kind of condition, it makes sense that kindness would evolve because individuals need to get along with one another. And if someone gets a reputation as exploitative um, or, or you know s- stealing from others and not putting in their fair share, they're going to be outed by others, you know, and they might end up being ostracized or punished in various kinds of ways. Um, so I think that the importance of kindness as essentially an adaptation, um, that helps make people attracted as, as attractive as mates, as friends. We're doing a study right now about leadership, um, and there's multiple paths toward, toward leadership. Some leaders become leaders because they're, they're ruthless and intimidating and selfish and scary, um. And some people become leaders because they're so kind and genuine and other-oriented that people trust them and like, yes, this person has my interest in mind. Um, So I I think that that kindness certainly has a place in the the human evolutionary story for for lots of different reasons.
0: I suppose that you can see quite easily here how the evolutionary mismatch is is at play because in the modern world we can live on our own in an airbnb getting food delivered to us and we're safe because the police have the streets and we're warm because there's electricity and heating and we don't need other people you know if you have Mm -hmm. sufficient resources you can go through your entire life basically not interacting with other people and apart from maybe over the internet at your remote work job um but the difference is we would have never been able to survive on our own previously and that kindness would have engendered other people to want to help us. It would have meant that we would have been less likely. Speaking of that, actually, what, I know this isn't specifically what you looked at, but I'm fascinated by the evolutionary um, explanation for depression and anxiety. Have you sure. ever looked at that?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's something else that we we cover a bit in the book. Um, it's really interesting, because from a, a positive psychology perspective, generally speaking, um, eradicating negative affect, negative emotional states seems to be a, a paramount goal, you know, and, and trust me, I don't like anxiety or depression as much as, as the next guy. Um, but, you know, there's a great anecdote that I include, um, I included in, in part of the book by Randy Nessie. So Randy coined the term Darwinian medicine has published extensively, including several books on Darwinian psychiatry, um, and how all the mental and physical health fields will benefit from being Darwinized and evolutionized and his backgrounds as a psychiatrist. And he had this great anecdote that led him to thinking this way, which was, um, he was working at the University of Michigan and one of his, he was doing therapy in addition to his, his faculty position and he had a, a client who was also a professor in a different department And the client said he was pretty anxious. And so Randy talked to him and and then prescribed him some anti-anxiety pills, um, you know, the equivalent of Xanax at the time, and said, come back in a month and talk to me. And the guy came back and said, all right, well, how you doing? He said, well, I feel feel good, I'm not anxious anymore. And so Randy's like, all right. And he said, but there's still a problem. He's like, well, what is it? And he's like, well, I got a pile of, of papers this big on my desk and I don't care to grade them whatsoever. And the students are knocking on my door and how come you're not doing your work and what's up with you? And, and apparently that motivation to sort of get that stuff done w- went away with the anxiety, which gave Nessie the insight of, wait a minute, maybe the negative affective states, such as anxiety, as unpleasant as they may be, have a very important evolutionary function. And You know, once you start thinking from an evolutionary perspective, if there's some feature of the organism that is species typical, if humans across the world have tendencies toward anxiety, especially under certain kinds of the same kinds of conditions, then instead of just saying, oh, anxiety feels bad, let's get rid of it. You know, well, why don't we step back and say, you know, what is this? Why? What's the function of it? What is the evolutionary function? Why is this part of our evolved psychology? And then in treating it, you have a different perspective. You know, you can step back and say, we don't want to just get rid of anxiety. We want to keep it controlled. So it's not like running someone's life. But this idea of making everyone just as happy and free of anxiety and so forth as possible. That doesn't make any evolutionary sense. What about depression? Depression's, uh, I'd say very similar. Um, very similar. There's a, a guy, Matt Keller, who I think, I know he was at the university of Colorado. I think he may still be there. Very bright scholar, um, published research a while back, really extensively looking at depression from an evolutionary lens. And it was, he was asking the same questions. He was like, well, instead of just getting rid of depression, which obviously, you know, depression can be, can be debilitating and, and have all kinds of adverse outcomes, it's like, but what, what might be the evolutionary function of depression? It's essentially the, the question. And what he found was even though the DSM, which is um, the main book that's used for diagnosing mental psychopathologies and mental health issues um, on a large global scale, the DSM at the, at that time, when it talked about depression, it, it did not take, and it still doesn't, it didn't take an evolutionary approach, so it just had all these symptoms, and if you've had these sp- symptoms over this amount of time, then you know we're gonna call you depressed. And, and what what Matt Keller found was that depression can actually come about by multiple pathways, and probably the best way to address depression is to think about, the pathway that led to it. The two specific contrasting examples he gave, one was the loss of a loved one. So loss of a loved one is a classic catalyst for depression. People might become depressed depending on the the closeness of the, of the relationship and so forth for extensive periods of time. And when people lose a loved one, they tend to reach out to others and try to form social connections. So a common thing that's found in people who have depression caused by loss is a reaching out to others whereas another catalyst for depression is an error a major error you mess something up there was something that was your fault you failed at something cheat on a Um, partner yes yeah messed up you can't take it back it becomes public this kind of thing and with this kind of thing with depression that follows from that People don't reach out to others. People withdraw. People stay stay in bed late. People stop eating. People like, I don't want to talk to anyone. They really, and the way he puts it is, and you also see a lot of obsessive thinking. And he says, people are like, um, it's like your mind goes into overdrive of, let me replay that and let me figure out what can I do in the future to not do that again? So a, a lot of the symptoms will look the same, but they're actually, very different kinds of experiences, and the specific patterns that go with those two different forms of depression seem to be adaptive given the sort of um, context under which they each came about.
0: So, the grief depression that is, I've lost somebody that was close to me. Presumably, this person would have provided me with support and maybe mm-hmm. food and maybe attention and sort of status, perhaps also. Mm-hmm. It is in my interests to reach out to other people because I need to become more integrated into the tribe, the group around me, and I'm going to do that by reaching out more. Whereas if I'm out on a hunt and I mess up and somebody gets hurt or I cheat on my partner and I get found out reaching out to other people in the tribe when they might think of me badly is probably Mm -hmm. not going to be tremendously effective. So something that I can do is keep myself to myself, reduce my energy expenditure, try and Mm -hmm. overthink whatever it is that's just gone on in a desperate attempt to try and drill that lesson into me and then move forward. Dude, that's so interesting. Yeah, That's so fascinating that I I didn't think about the the adaptive effect of depression in that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was one thing that I thought, sure, what emotions do you think we would have felt in ancestral times that are more rare now in the modern world
1: interesting question um i I know there's there's a guy who passed away recently unfortunately John montgomery um, neuroscientist who became super interested in evolutionary psych. Um, moved to New York at some point from California and was doing research in my lab actually for a while. And he he wrote pretty extensively about affective states and emotional states across nomadic versus westernized kinds of societies. And his main claim, it's probably overstated, but he essentially made the case that what we call mental illness and things, that especially emotional-based mental illness, um, severe depression, um, severe anxiety, um, mood stability issues. W- what his claim was is that these are relatively rare in pre-Westernized societies. Um, so getting, it's kind of like uh, in a somewhat roundabout way getting to your question of what emotional states would we have experienced in different proportions.
0: Less I think of I, The extreme depression, yeah, anxiety, loneliness
1: exactly exactly and and i think part of it is
0: um that
1: we now have these contexts these social contexts where we're um we're not constantly surrounded by support we're not constantly surrounded by family we're not constantly surrounded by um secondary family or friends that we've um been connected with over and over again extensively like we're now running into all kinds of situations where we run into people that are non-relatives, we run into people that are strangers. Um, So we have all these environmental conditions that are, especially socially, that are so different from ancestral conditions. And what you find is anxiety and depression are way more common in urbanized areas than even in suburban areas or rural areas or certainly in nomadic kinds of environments. And I feel like, from an evolutionary perspective, we can totally understand this, you know. So people are like asking, like, why? Well, maybe we need more psychiatrists in large cities. Maybe we need better pharmaceuticals, you know, this kind of thing. Maybe we need more group therapy. And I'm not saying that these are are bad things, and certainly could, you know, could be beneficial. But again, the evolutionary perspective really encourages us to step back and say, wait a minute, let's let's take a big picture look at this and see why is this happening in the first place.
0: Mm, I wondered whether or would be an emotion that we might feel a little bit more ancestrally. Just that, you know, people try and chase that down now by going to a movie and seeing really cool special effects. Mm -hmm. But I think our, um, or Radar, has been uh, tuned down a little bit because of what we can have delivered to us by technology and also yeah. a detachment from the natural world. It's very rare that you would see a beautiful night sky. And yet the times when you do, or at least for me, I look up and I think, oh, God, I need to do this more. I, ha- yeah. I must spend more time staring at the night sky. And then you don't. And I think, well, why? What is it about that? The same as a a big field a beautiful wide open space why is it that I like the look of that well probably because I could see predators and prey from an mm-hmm. absolute mile off and mm-hmm. yet for the most part I my vision is constrained by walls or buildings or yeah. the pillars of my car and yeah, yeah I, th- I felt like awe would be would perhaps be one of them
1: yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, there's this concept of a supernormal stimulus and a supernormal stimulus is something that an organism evolved to respond to. And it's like it for some reason or another, usually artificially by human means, there's a, um, a, an expanded or amplified version of the stimulus is is made. And a lot of times, you know, we can think of, of companies as as making all kinds of products that are just like like amplified versions of things that we gravitate towards so you like food that's high in carbohydrates and and sugar and salt well here's McDonald's you know and, and it's and it's cheap on top of that kind of thing so I feel like um, in the modern world we have things that are just like like would have been unbelievable under ancestral conditions would have been you know a, a McDonald's milkshake 20,000 years ago would have been by far and away the sweetest thing anyone on earth would have ever experienced. And now you can get one every single day for like $2. Um, you know, and so we get a little bit desensitized to it. You know, and, and then the other part of what you're talking about, Chris, and I'm a huge advocate of, of the outdoors. Um, and you know, I lead hikes on our campus. We have great mountains right here in, in New Paltz and try to get outside as much as I, as I can. That it, there's something to it, you know. There really is, and I know Eo Wilson, who passed away recently, unfortunately, um, huge,
0: Post, posthumously cancelled as well. Passed away and then got posthumously oh, cancelled. Oh, it's it's it's
1: too easy. He'll he'll come back though. He'll come back. <laughs> um, yeah. But he, um, you know, he wrote about biophilia, which is essentially what you're exactly what you're talking about, which is we have an inherent natural love of the living world. And we do because our ancestors needed that. We needed to know flora and fauna and we needed to know where, where the water was and when the water was going to be at a high point versus a low point, you know, and eventually we became very sensitive to solar events and knowing, okay, the sun's rising here. That means the days are going to get longer. The days are going to get shorter. Um, and I feel like the experience of awe, because it's funny, at, at at 52, I feel like I find myself chasing those kinds of experiences. And I had this insight the other day, I was talking with a good friend about the sun, you know, and it's, it's, it's funny, because like, where I live, I can actually watch the sunrise right over the Hudson River, which on mornings where I catch it, it's just like magical, like there's nothing that beats it. And. I can track it. I can see now it's starting to come northward every morning just a little bit more and a little bit earlier. And like these things are so like, imagine if you had never seen or experienced the sun. And at some point, just someone unveiled it and it's like, there's the sun. Like nothing in the world could be that amazing. You know, it's so beautiful, so powerful. And when you think about so many like nomadic groups and ancestral groups that were like sun worshipers. Like, yeah, because that thing, that's that's the energy for all of us. That's providing everything for all the food that we're going to need for our sustenance. Um, Following that is something that, of course, our ancestors would have been highly attuned to. So, you know, getting ourselves the real short message, I guess, if there is a message is step back and think about how can I make my life more similar to what it would have been like under ancestral conditions. Eating natural foods, being surrounded by people who I feel real genuine loyalty toward and friendship with and kinship with. Um, Finding, see if that works, finding, you know, finding real love where there's someone that you actually really appreciate in a very deep way and connect with in a, in a deep kind of way, getting into the out of doors, you know, eating natural foods. It's it's so easy to just kind of look at your phone and just, you know, eat fast food and, and and get into these these habits. The modern world, you know, makes it so easy to sort of just sit on your butt and do nothing. But there's, there's costs associated with that that are, I think, very hard for us to see. So this evolutionary perspective really, I think, gets us to sort of step back and open our eyes and think about liabilities of modern technologies and modern living, but also think about, well, what can I do to sort of really live a richer life today?
0: It, it's something that I think about a lot. I think it's something that everybody thinks about. Everybody knows that the things that they do on a daily basis – are probably not all the best for them, right? We we mm-hmm. constantly have this tension inside of our minds, this, uh, whether it be productivity guilt or connection with family guilt or overwork guilt, whatever it is, right? There's some sort of shame or resentment that we have for the way that we've spent the last 24 hours because we could have got up earlier and seen the sun or we should yeah. have gone out for a walk more or we should have called a, our parents or we should have done whatever. And you know previously, there wouldn't have been anything else to do that wasn't that. It right. would have been the majority of your life would have been spent outdoors with your family eating natural foods because there was no alternative that was it that and was it, it. It, it very much is increasingly i'm thinking about this that we are kind of trying to reinvent a happier version of life that's that's generally what modern the modern world is right yeah. we've tried to create a happier, safer, more convenient. Version of life for us, because otherwise we'd just still be living on on fields and plains. And yeah. it is very much the job, I think, of the modern human to try and think: right, what has the world thrown out? Which which part of this bath with bathwater was baby, and which bit of yeah. it should I have held sure. on to? And yeah. um, you know, that's the sort of the perennial challenge that everybody has at the moment. You know, H- how much am I supposed to? How much is it worth me chasing down? this new job role or this new bit of status when I don't need any more status, when I, I genuinely might take more pleasure from just getting home an hour earlier and spending it with my kids, or I, might, I genuinely might prefer to just get a job that is five minutes down the road because I already have enough money, I already have enough whatever else it is. And it means that I can spend my time training or doing whatever else it is that I really, really enjoy to do, which Mm -hmm. is again, more naturalistic. People that choose to spend, I've been spending a bit of time around people in New York who have some very, very expensive apartments, Mm -hmm. uh, one of them in Tribeca. And I thought for this sort of money, you could probably have a house and the flights to be able to get there, on three different continents, in mm, some right. small little place, and which one's going to give you more satisfaction, and it, it really yeah. is, and, and that's not to say that there isn't value in having a, a beautiful apartment that's convenient in downtown, and your kids can have good education, and all that stuff, but we do get lied to, both by ourselves, and by what the people around us do, and by what culture yeah. tells us that we're supposed to do, and yeah, very much the the most effective people that I know, aren't people that are going out and seeking new information. They're ones that are fantastic at filtering the information that they get. They're the ones that are able to really discriminate the yeah. signal from the noise. And they go, okay, this is something that I need. This is just, this is shit. I don't need this. This, yeah. is po- this is pointless. It doesn't add anything to my life. And um, that convenience is the final sort of nail in the coffin that when you mix hypernormal stimuli with always on availability, it's really different. Yeah. I'm walking down the street. I was going to the gym earlier on. I walked past the Krispy Kreme in Times Square, and I yeah. thought, "I'm I'm on my way to the gym. Why am I looking at this Krispy Kreme place as if <laughs> right, I want to go right. to it? Like, I'm literally yeah. going to offset it. Well, it's because it's there. Yeah. It's because it's directly in front of me, and because there's basically no benefit in the here and now for me doing it. There'll be benefit. There'll be a a, a pain. Sorry for me to pay tomorrow or be in a couple of weeks' time when I'm not as lean as I want to be. But yeah, man, I think um I really hope that paleopsychology becomes more of a more of a field that people pay attention to because I genuinely do think it's probably got a lot of the answers to questions that people feel are super existential and are actually just mismatches between what their system is used to and what they're doing now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean I, I appreciate it. I think you've articulated that really well and and you know certainly a lot of the work that I've done. In the last few years, has really been trying to advance exactly this. One one angle that you know I've thought about quite a bit has to do with government and business organizations, where especially like producers of technology. Um, so you can imagine, you know, the companies that are social media companies or or Apple or, or companies that are making these technologies. Wouldn't it be great if they had trainings or personnel or something, some structure? that connected with, explicitly connected with an evolutionary approach. Wouldn't it be great if Snapchat and Instagram had people at, at a very high level with an understanding of, you know, this stuff can be addictive, this stuff can be problematic. Um, and what can we do understanding human evolved psychology? What can we do with this product to help minimize those those unforeseen liabilities. And well, I think so I, I like think what they're,
0: what they're doing, what these people are doing, they do understand the evolution or at least in part they understand it, but they're using it to further magnify yeah. the revenue and the time yep, on sites that they Absolutely. do with these apps. So yeah, I think first off you would need to have a change of philosophy. You know, mm-hmm. if you give these people a deeper understanding of how the human brain works, to me that just seems a lot like you're giving them more leverage to be able to take people's time away. But I Dude, I, I think that you're right with that as well. It'd be fantastic if these technology companies could use the insights around how our minds work to make our lives better because they have, it's their choice yeah. what we do with our devices. They could make the apps less addictive. They could make the time that we spend on them more meaningful to us. They could connect us with stuff that makes us feel better rather than more outraged and blah, blah, blah. And I wonder whether we're going to look back in, 50 years time at this period in the same way as us looking back at those ladies that used to lick the nibs of uh the paintbrushes that had radium on them and mm. think what, the, what were you doing or the people that worked <laughs> right. in in uh, next to factories that were spewing out smoke and just yeah. see it as yeah. you know this was a perhaps necessary cost en route to finding a more refined version of something that would later be a completed product but god I'm glad that I didn't live through that time
1: wow that's a very powerful idea. And, and to be honest, I think what you're painting is almost a best-case scenario.
0: Or that it gets better. That's presuming that it gets better. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, with VR right. and metaverse yeah. and augmented reality and Neuralink yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, when you can't escape it anymore, if we don't fix the philosophy problem around this misalignment between what we want and what the, te- what the apps do, yeah, it just gets deeper, right? It just gets more embedded.
1: Yeah, yeah I think so. I think you're ac- absolutely right on that.
0: Gayer, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the work that you do, where should they go?
1: Oh, well, I've got my website, com, And uh, I also have a Psychology Today blog called Darwin's Subterranean World. And I would be more than happy to connect with people who have questions or want to engage in discussions.
0: Dope. Thanks, Glenn.
1: Yep. Thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate being on the show.